So we've been preaching through the story of the Bible in 16 verses. And today we look at David as uh, God promising to David that his kingdom would be established forever. That's where we are in this line in our story. And so Psalm 89 talks about God's faithfulness, not just to David, but his faithfulness to us. And so Psalm 89 Beginning in verse 1, our call to worship today. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne For all generations. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. You have a mighty arm, strong as your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. We've come to sing to the King today. And so, would you stand with us as we sing to the Lord? I'm going to pray for us as we begin our service today. Father, would you be exalted in our midst as we sing to you. You are the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords, and your faithfulness extends to all generations. So elevate our hearts, lift up our eyes to see the glory of Christ as our shepherd is our great savior and as our great king in jesus name amen all right good morning uh if you have your bibles turn to second samuel chapter seven and if you didn't get one of the handouts for the notes this morning and you'd like that to follow along just raise your hand and we'll get one of those to you um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I hope you've got your fingers ready because we're, we're going to fly this morning running through lots of different passages of Scripture. Um, so we're going to do a little bit of a Bible drill today. But today we look at King David as part of our story of the Bible, the story of the Bible in 16 verses. And we last left off at the Passover, so we've got a lot of ground to cover. We've skipped a lot in our Bibles, and so... Um, We're going to remind ourselves where we've been and where we are headed. But today is probably one of the most important stops along the story of the Bible. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
I've been reading through First and Second Samuel as part of my own reading plan, and, and it just so happened we were preaching this text, and I've been reading through, and this is such a great book, Second um, Samuel chapter 7. Our key verse or verses this morning uh, is verses 12 and 13. Um, but it'd be helpful for us to read the entire chapter here. And I'm going to read very quickly, okay? So I hope you'll follow along. 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says, Now when the king lived in his house, that is King David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Look now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go. Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And so God told Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel... Did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled, now here's, here's our two key verses, all right? Verse 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Say that next word out loud. Forever. Verse 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established, say that word one more time, forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray together. Father, this morning I pray that you would speak through the preaching of your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. And that you would show us today who is truly on the throne. That you are king of all kings. You are above all lords. And the universe is your domain. And you rule well. But Father, I pray that we would not just look to see who is on the throne of heaven. 
But let us look to the throne of our hearts and see who's sitting there. Father, help us to yield control and to submit to your lordship today. You are king. You deserve all glory and all praise. So I pray that you would be glorified now in the preaching and teaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so where are we in our story? Story of the Bible in 16 verses. This is chapter 8 in our section, okay? So there in your notes, we've kind of given you a, a, a reminder of where we are, and I've highlighted what we're going to look at today, okay? So where, where have we been? The story so far is that God created a kingdom, and He is the king of that kingdom. He created the heavens and the earth, but... He made human beings to represent Him in that kingdom. He made us in His image, as image bearers. And the first image bearers, Adam and Eve, rejected the call to represent God. And that led to sin and death. And yet, in Genesis 3, verse 15, God promised to defeat the serpent through the seed of the woman, who we found out in Genesis 12 is also the seed of Abraham. And through Abraham's family, specifically now, Genesis 14, through Judah's line, through his seed, and today we'll see more specifically David, the covenant blessings would come to the world. And because all people were guilty and deserved death, we saw last week that the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly Israel's need for a substitute. And so that's where we are today as we look at King David and his kingdom. So I want to start with a question, a personal question. Have you ever asked God for something in prayer that he didn't give you, he said no to, and then you look back and you're like, oh, thank God he did not answer that prayer the way I wanted it. Have you ever thanked God, like Garth Brooks used to say, you ever thanked God for unanswered prayers? Right? Sometimes I look back at my own life and it just looks like I've got everything planned out. I know what needs to happen. And then I actually give God advice and say, God, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but there's some things coming up that it would be great if you would work it out this way. And God, I've already got it all planned out. And I know this is how it's supposed to, to be because I can just see it. And then you pray for that and then it turns out to be completely different. Something doesn't happen. The job doesn't go through. You don't get what you expected. And then you look back and say, I'm so glad I did not get my way there and sometimes we have to be careful when we look on the throne of our own hearts we want to be in control right we want to, we got our little kingdom figured out and we have to remind ourselves of who is truly on the throne well today in this text it is about an unanswered prayer and so what we see in this text and all throughout scripture is that God is committed to accomplishing his purposes his way not our way but his way and there's no sinful ambition or misguided desire of ours to help God out that can change that now we've already seen one example of sinful ambition right at the tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 the people build a tower in order to make a great name for themselves and what does God do he steps in, confuses their language, and instead of making a great name for the nations, he chooses to make a great name for Abraham. But today is not an example of sinful ambition. It's actually an example of godly ambition. You see, sometimes God tells us no 
to our prayers to keep us from something evil. But sometimes God's no is actually intended to provide something better than what we asked for. Sometimes we ask for too little. Sometimes we pray and say, God, I got this figured out. I think this would be really great. And God says, actually, no, I have something better for you. You see, after what we find in 2 Samuel chapter 7 is King David on his throne. He's conquered all the neighboring kingdoms. He's established peace throughout the realm of Israel. And he looks around and he sees his kingdom He sees his royal palace, and then he notices that the God that he worships is still living in a tent. And so David's godly ambition leads him to pray to the Lord about building a house for God. And yet, here's the irony in this text. David desires to build a house for God, and yet God says, No, David, I'm going to build a house for you. But how did we get here? Right? The last time we were here, if you were here last Sunday, we were with Moses. And that's a long time ago. That's almost a thousand years before. So what happened in the last thousand years to get from Moses to David? How did we get here? How did we even end up with a king in Israel in the first place? And so take your Bibles quickly. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 17. We're going to be all over the place. Hold your place in 2 Samuel. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Okay, and as you're turning there, let me remind you why the book of Deuteronomy exists. The new generation of Israelites are about to enter into the promised land. And so if you've been reading through your Bible and you get to Deuteronomy, you're probably thinking, I just read this. I, this was in Leviticus. Why am I in number? Why am I reading this all over again? And it's because Deuteronomy was written to the second generation of Israelites. This is their dress rehearsal. This is their reminder of how they should live in the promised land. And so when God gave his people the law in Deuteronomy, he told them before they ever had a king, he told them about the future kings in Israel. Now the picture of Israel is unique because God was their king. It was a theocracy. God is the king of the nation. So they didn't really need a king in the ways that the pagan nations needed a king. But God knew that one day they would reject him as their king. And they would want to raise up an earthly king to be like all the other nations around them. And so God told them how those kings should rule. So look at Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. This is a long time before David comes on the scene. God said, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say... I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. 
And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel." So we read that and we see that the intent was that God would reign over his people through a relationship with this earthly king. And the earthly king of Israel, as he followed God's rule and submitted to God's reign, would be a reflection of the true king of Israel. So the king over Israel was to be a reflection of God who was the true king. Now, let's, we're going to do a little history lesson. Catch all of you up. Ready? Here we go. Last week we looked at the Passover. So as they come into the promised land, God delivered them from Egypt. God saved them from Egyptian bondage and brought them into the wilderness where he gave them the law at Mount Sinai. And what do the people do with the law? Well, they rejected the Lord. And that entire generation died before they reached the promised land. Including Moses, by the way. Moses didn't even make it to the promised land. And so after Moses dies, his servant Joshua rises to take his place. And Joshua leads Israel to destroy all the idolatrous nations that are currently inhabiting the, the, the land of Canaan. This is what the book of Joshua is about. Going into the promised land and taking out all of the idolatrous, immoral nations. Beginning with, Joshua chapter 2, the city of Jericho, right? And so through Joshua's leadership, Israel conquers the land of Canaan and they begin to settle in the promised land. But they did not destroy all the nations like they were supposed to, which would lead to a lot of problems later. And so they get settled, but there's a problem. The problem is that the threats of these outside invaders didn't stop. And so there's no rest in the land. The people can't relax. There's always the threat of somebody coming to attack them. But not only were the threats coming from the outside, even worse, the threats were coming from the inside. Because the land of Israel, the people of Israel themselves began to fall away into rampant immorality and idolatry. And thus begins the saga of the days of the judges, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And so after Joshua's death, and as well as his entire generation, Judges chapter 2 verse 10 says this about the next generation. It says, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. They forgot everything that Joshua had experienced. And so when Israel's possession of the promised land is threatened, the people naturally look for help. The problem for the people of Israel is that they don't look for the right kind of help. So they have to ask for judges. And God graciously gives them these judges, these military rulers to step in, save the day, lead the people, and deliver them from their enemies. And so you get these guys like Barak and Deborah, or I had a youth minister here in town who swore that 
her name was Deborah because nobody said Deborah back then, but I still call her Deborah. He said, no, it's Deborah, right? And I'm pretty sure we can call her Deborah. Anyways, you got Barak and Deborah and people like Samson and Gideon and Jephthah, all of these fallen men and women who are imperfect people who lead for a time. The people come back out of idolatry, but then when the judges die, they go back to their old pattern of living. And so even, you get this guy named Gideon, for example. Gideon has success, and he stops the Midianites. And what does Israel try to do? They make a bid to try to make Gideon their king. And they say, let's make a dynasty of kings, and let's begin with Gideon. But Gideon rejects this on the grounds that the Lord is king. I don't need to be king over you, but the Lord is king. And so Gideon dies. But then he has a son, Abimelech. Abimelech in Hebrew, two words, Abi, father, Melech, king, which means my father is king. Abimelech steps in and says, I'll be king. If my daddy didn't want to step in and be king, I'm the rightful king. And so Abimelech succeeds in being a ruler over a small region in Israel for a small time. And so you have this continual pattern of the the judges continuing to rule. And the book of Judges ends with this horrible story that we can't even say out loud with children in the room. But it's so bad that you see where the sinfulness of man has led Israel to. And the last verse of the last chapter of the book of Judges ends with this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's where we find ourselves. However, that does not mean that God was not still ruling over his people. See, what we see is that God is ruling in the background. Following the days of the judges, we are introduced to this very small four-chapter book called Joshua Judges, say it, Ruth, right? Ruth, okay? Ruth. And maybe you've wondered, what is the point of this little tiny book? Is it just a love story? What's the point? It's bigger than a love story. Its significance to the story of the Bible is anything but small. What is the book of Ruth about? We're told about the story of a a woman from Moab, a pagan woman named Ruth, who follows her mother-in-law, Naomi, back to Israel after their husbands die. And so Ruth later meets a distant relative of Naomi named Boaz, who takes her as his wife in this beautiful love story about redemption. But this love story between Ruth and Boaz is really meant to tell a greater love story between God and his people. Because through God's providence, they have a child named Obed, who is the grandfather of King David. You see, the purpose of the book of Ruth is actually to introduce us to King David. To introduce us that in the days of the judges, when there's no king in Israel, and everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes, and it looks like God has forsaken his people, he's working in the background in the life of a Moabite woman to to raise up a future king. God is working in the background here. And the point of the book of Ruth is to show that even in the darkness of God's people, God shines the light of his covenant. He is faithful to his promises. Which brings us to the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. We're getting there, right? Where we first meet the prophet Samuel. Samuel is the last judge. He's the last of the judges. And he's going to be a major player in anointing Saul and later David as kings over Israel. So when the people ask for a king, why do they ask for a king? 
Do they ask for the desire based on the covenant? God, we want, a, we want a king who's going to rule over us well and show us what it looks like for you to be our king? No, that's not what they wanted. Why did they want a king? They wanted a king to be like everybody else. The Philistines have a king. The Jebusites have a king. The, the Canaanites have a king. The, the termites have a king. Everybody's got kings. We want a king. They have protection. They have a leader. We need a king. And so they, they didn't do it out of, a, out of a right heart. They did it out of a misplaced desire to be like everybody else. We want a king. And so their desire was much like the people of today in the United States of America. They put way too much faith in political leaders, governments, and military might and less on the faithfulness of God. And so what does God do? God gives them exactly what they ask for by raising up Saul to be their first king. And Samuel warns Israel that the kind of king that they ask for will not turn out to be what they want. And yet Israel is not interested in the covenant. They are interested in safety and security and strength. And so at the beginning of Saul's reign, there's no suggestion that he's going to be a failure in fact, Saul is full of promise. He's a head taller than everybody else. He begins his reign by protecting his people. He looks to be a, like a good king. And so Samuel steps aside from leadership, but he warns the people. It's up to them and it's up to Saul to follow the Lord. And if they do, all will be well. But it's not to be so. Because Saul's first major blunder is to take himself as king into the office of priest where Samuel tells him that the kingdom will be taken. Saul goes and offers these sacrifices like he's a priest, which he was specifically commanded not to do. And then the Lord, uh, this is the, the, what takes the cake, the Lord sends Saul to destroy the Amalekites, every one of them. And God says, don't leave an animal, don't leave a person, don't leave a child, destroy everything because of their sin. And what does Saul do? Saul saves the king and he keeps some of the best Amalekite livestock for himself. Supposedly in order to offer sacrifices to God. Or so he says. Oh, I was going to make a sacrifice to God. It, it, it was going to the church. That's basically what he's saying. I'm going to give my money for ministry. Okay, I'm giving this for, for good things. Yeah, right. Right, Saul. And so Samuel tells him that the kingdom has been taken away. And so Saul shows himself to be the very opposite of what Deuteronomy 17 uh, expected of a covenant king. And so while, Saul, while Saul still lives and reigns as king, a man after God's own heart is being drawn into the leadership through no plan of his own. There's a little shepherd boy in, in Bethlehem who is raising his sheep, minding his own business, and God sends Samuel to the house of Jesse to anoint young David as king. So the Spirit of the Lord comes upon David and the Spirit departs from Saul. And so David now moves from being a shepherd of sheep to a prince and a savior of his people. So there's this beautiful picture of David, not just as shepherd, but as a savior. This young, spirit-empowered boy, David, rises to fight a giant named Goliath. And so there's this beautiful picture of the gospel here. As all Israel retreats in terror from the Philistines and their champion, Goliath, God's anointed king, not Saul, but David, who appears to be weak and insignificant, fights for his people knowing that the battle is the Lord's. And so 
hear gospel language here, David stands alone as the one in place of the many, and through his victory, he works salvation for God's people. Sound familiar? That's why David and Goliath is not about you overcoming your giants. It's about you're just like Israel and you couldn't defeat the enemy of sin and there's no way to save yourself and you needed someone better and stronger than you to step in your place and fight your battle for you. That's the good news of the gospel, right? That we can't overcome our giants. We need a giant slayer in our life. And so Saul's jealousy grows to the point where he wants to kill David. And so, rejected and despised, David is cast away from his people, awaiting God's timing to raise him up as a king. And so he becomes king at the age of 30. In 2 Samuel 5, he launches a successful military campaign, and he destroys the Philistines, secures the border of Israel. He doesn't build a wall, but he secures the borders, right? He He captures the capital city of the Jebusites. Their capital city was Jerusalem. And David makes Jerusalem the capital city of Israel. And he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And now in our text today, David sits on his throne and decides to build a permanent sanctuary for the Ark of the Covenant. And more importantly, God's presence, which accompanies the Ark. And so what happens? God sends the prophet Nathan. In the middle of the night, God tells Nathan, You go tell David, no, sir, you will not build a house for me. David, I don't remember asking you to build a house for me. In fact, you prayed and want, you, out of a godly desire, you want to build a house for me, but I'm going to give you something better, David. I'm going to build a house for you. So we look at our text today, 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 and 13. God says, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. All right, so now we're getting into our notes here. God told David that after he died, his royal line would continue, and God would establish David's kingdom and the kingdom of David's son forever. And so, When we talk about the kingdom, when you hear kingdom language here this morning, the kingdom is all about God reigning over his people in his place for his purpose. Those are the three words I want you to hear. God's people in his place for his purpose. So a kingdom, any kingdom has a people, has a place, and they have a purpose. And in this way, God set up the Davidic kingdom. All right. So who are God's people in this kingdom? There in your notes. We're told that God's people, through, through God's people, a continual seed will endure. This is the promise made in 2 Samuel 7, that through David's line, a continual seed will endure. 2 Samuel 7 starts off with David saying, I want to build a temple. God, I want to build a house for you, for your glory to dwell. And in a startling reversal, basically God says, no, I'm going to build a house for you, And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you and I will establish your kingdom forever. I want you to remember that word forever, right? When you see that and you read forever in the 21st century, we need to sit up and take notice. Because Three Rivers, when God says that I will establish that kingdom forever, what he's saying, he's going to set up something that will last forever. And what that means is it's still in place today. This impacts Eternity, this verse, 
That means that what God said to David then applies today. Even now, God's kingdom is forever. So the seed will endure and an honored son will reign. There will be an honored son, a descendant of David, who is going to reign over his people whose kingdom will be forever. Now we've got to ask a question. If you're doing good Bible study, you better be asking this question. Who's he? Because David had a lot of sons, right? Who is he? You look back, it's the offspring of David. I will be his father and he will be my son. That is startling that God is setting up kings who will reign in the line of David and they will stand in special relation to God. And so a a son of David will in some sense be a son of God. We don't have time to to read this, but 1 Chronicles 22, uh, we find that this son is Solomon. That Solomon is the king who will reign. It says that he called for Solomon his son and charged him to build a house for the Lord. And David said to Solomon, my son, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, but I will give your son rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will establish his royal throne in Israel forever. Alright, so Solomon, the next king of Israel, was to relate to God as a son. As a reflection of the Father on high to the people of God. So now we have God's people. Let's look at God's place. Alright, God's people in God's place. What What will this Davidic kingdom be like that God is setting up? It will be a place where they will enjoy God's rest. They will enjoy rest. If you remember in the book of Judges, there was no rest. They're constantly having enemies come in. But look at chapter 7, verse 1, 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. It says, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The kingdom of David would be rest for the people. They could relax. They didn't have to worry about the enemies coming from outside. Not only will it be a place where they will enjoy God's rest, but it will be a place where they will encounter God's glory. David wanted to build a temple. Up until this point, the people of Israel had been a traveling people. And they had to carry the Ark of the Covenant and they had to put it in a tabernacle or a tent. And God's glory and His presence had dwelled in their midst in the form of a mobile sanctuary, a tabernacle. And so God was going to build a temple. A permanent structure where His glory would dwell. And what was the purpose? We have God's people in God's place. But what's the purpose The purpose of all of this is first to redeem a chosen people. To redeem a chosen people. If you look at 2 Samuel, we didn't read this earlier, but verse 23 says, David says this, Who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to to redeem to be his people? God was redeeming his people, and it was through Israel, not just that that, that Israel would be saved, but the nations would come to know God. And so these sacrifices are made in the temple. People would be redeemed. They would come to know the Lord. And it wasn't just for their sake. It was for the sake of the nations. The second reason, the second purpose was that they would come, not just to be redeemed, but they would come to the temple to praise the incomparable God. The fact that there was no God like the Lord's. This is what David prays here. That your name will be magnified forever. 
The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established forever. There is no God like you. The purpose of people coming to the temple was to see a visual representation of the majesty of God and for them to see the glory of God in that temple and say, God, there is no one like you. Now remember, from the very beginning, all the way back to Abraham, God promised to make Abraham great. But why? If you remember in Genesis 12, the blessing of God would be made known to all peoples. God told Abraham, I'm going to make peoples come from you. The peoples, the nations will be blessed. All the peoples of the earth are meant to know the glory of God. And so we don't have time. Oh, I wish we had time to do all this. But if you turn to 1 Kings 8, don't turn there. But if you look and read this later, 1 Kings chapter 8, I'm going to read this. Verses 41 to 43. David has died and his son Solomon is dedicating the temple. And hear what Solomon says about this new temple that would display the glory of God. Solomon said, likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel comes from a far country for your namesake, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. When that foreigner comes and prays toward this house in this temple... Lord, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as you do your people Israel and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. Solomon dedicates the temple and says this temple is not just for Israel. It's for all nations to come to this temple to see the glory of the Lord which is how we close up here in your notes. That's the purpose in your notes that nations in the Davidic kingdom, will come to the temple and behold God's greatness. That was the purpose of the temple, for the nations to come and to see and behold God's greatness. You see, David wanted to build a house where the people in Israel could worship. But God planned to build a house where all the nations could worship. But there's a problem here. Before we move on, this leads to this next section, but there's a problem. Do you remember the qualifications for the kings in Deuteronomy 17? That when you come to the land, he must, this king must keep a copy of my word. He must read it. He must learn to fear me. He must keep my word. He must not turn aside from my commands, either to the right or to the left. Let me ask you a question. Did David fulfill that? Did he ever turn to the right or to the left? We see in 2 Samuel 8 about David's kindness to Mephibosheth in chapter 9, in chapter 10, more of his victories. But then in chapter 11, he looks upon his roof and gazes out on a woman named Bathsheba, the wife of another man. Commits adultery, tries to cover it up, which is useless. You can't cover up your sin. It will not work. But he tries to cover it up, which leads him into deeper sin, having Bathsheba's husband killed. And so this David, the anointed king over Israel, set up to rule and reign, is now given over to adultery and murder. And unfortunately, he's not alone, right? Because his son Solomon is no better. All of our hopes for this king is going to be great, he's going to rule over God's people. David falls and so does Solomon. Deuteronomy 17 says, Do not acquire horses, do not acquire wives for yourself, or you will lose your heart. And do not acquire excessive silver and gold. And yet, what does Solomon do? 
He has 700 wives and 300 concubines and he becomes the wealthiest man that has ever lived through excessive silver and gold and his heart turns to idolatry. And that becomes the story of every king after him. And so all of our hopes in the kings of Israel begin to fall because every single one of them has fallen. Even after Solomon's son, Rehoboam, takes the throne and the kingdom becomes divided. And now there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And those are few good kings in the southern kingdom of Judah. But even those guys fall. And so they eventually are taken into captivity with the Babylonians. And the people of God are overthrown and the temple is destroyed. But what I want you to see in the midst of that falling kingdom is that the promise to David and his line still stands. There are promises all throughout the prophets as the people are in Babylon and they're in captivity and they're wondering, is David's kingdom really going to be established forever? The truth is, yes. Now we're going all Christmas on you today in June, okay? But here's some passages from Isaiah. Hear this. Y'all heard this one before? Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born. Sound familiar? And, the, and a son to us is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase in, of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Here it is. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Christmas in June, y'all. This is what the incarnation is about. The prophets are telling you there's one coming. The king is coming. And y'all, this is where this sermon turns from lecture to sermon, right? We start talking about, this is where power comes from. We start seeing the story come together. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah keeps preaching. Y'all may not have hope in Babylon, but I want you to know, listen to this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. His family line looks like it's cut off, but there's going to be a shoot that grows out of that stump, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah is not alone because Jeremiah is preaching the same thing to the people in Babylon. Chapter 23, Jeremiah 23 verses 5 and 6. Behold the days are coming declares the Lord. I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and he will deal wisely. He shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Isaiah and Jeremiah are not the only prophets preaching this message. You can go to Ezekiel 37 and Hosea chapter 3 and Zechariah chapter 12 and chapter 13. They're preaching a new king is coming. A king from the line of David. He will be better than any other king. He will uphold Deuteronomy 17. He will fulfill all righteousness. He will do all things well. And so amidst all of Israel's history, king after king turns away from God, and yet there's a continual promise that an anointed one would come from David's line and establish the kingdom of God, which moves us now from the Davidic kingdom to the divine king. There is a divine king coming. And this is how the Old Testament closes, right? Trying to help you make sense of your Bible. The Old Testament closes with God's people clinging to the promise that we've read from 2 Samuel 7. That one day a Messiah, an anointed one, was going to come from David's line and establish the kingdom of God. And yet for 400 years they waited in silence. No word from God. No advent. As C.S. Lewis said, it's always winter and there's never Christmas. 
Anticipating the coming of the Messiah. Anticipating the coming of the divine king who will usher in God's kingdom. And so here's what I want you to do. Bible drill, ready? Matthew chapter 1. Turn to the New Testament. I want you to see this. Matthew chapter 1. First book, first verse, first chapter of the New Testament. This is how Matthew begins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. If you're still turning, just listen. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so he gives a genealogy that starts with Abraham and goes through David talking about Jesus. Now turn to Luke chapter 1, right? I'm going to go quick. Luke chapter 1. We're not going to look at Mark, but Mark basically skips over the whole birth of Jesus. But the first words out of Mark's mouth uh, that Jesus says are, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The kingdom is here. But if you get to Luke chapter 1, let's see God's people in God's place for God's purpose. Luke chapter 1. Verse 26, Christmas in June, here it is. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. There it is, right? And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give to him the throne of his Father. David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end so here we go God's people in your notes the divine king God's people we see that Jesus came from the seed of David this is the seed that was promised he comes from the seed of David and he is ultimately the honored son Jesus came as the son of God He's the seed of David, but he's also the son of God. Luke chapter 2, if you're there, you can read it. Luke chapter 2, verse 11. You've heard this verse before at Christmas time. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. He is from the seed of David and he is the honored son of God. He is, Jesus is the full perfect, complete representation of the Father who is on high. He is the earthly king and the only earthly king who will finally, perfectly reflect the heavenly king. He is the Son from the Father. And so we have God's people and now in God's place. God's place is no longer found in a temple, but now it is in Christ that we find our rest. It's in Christ that we find our rest if you're in Luke, look at Luke chapter 1. We'll read this for you. Luke chapter 1, Zechariah's prophecy. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Luke chapter 1, verse 67. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and this is what he said. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Does that sound familiar? Hear this language. As God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah looks at this newborn baby Jesus and says, this is the king that has been promised to come. So Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, is our rest. And when we enter into him, we find rest for our souls. Rest from our battles with, we wage with sin. Rest in the only righteousness that he can give. I want to give you a real quick question. Are you resting in Jesus today? Are you resting in his finished work? Are you resting in the fact that he has conquered every enemy that you have? He has conquered every sin that you can find rest in him today. Not only do we find rest in Jesus, but in Christ we also see God's glory. We see His glory. If you turn, you don't have to turn there, but John chapter 1, how does John introduce Jesus? John chapter 1 says that Jesus dwelt, He was the Word of God who dwelt among us, who tabernacled among us. And so in Christ we find our rest, and in Christ we see His glory. Which is why in John chapter 2, Jesus refers to Himself as the temple. No longer do you go to a building to see the glory of God, but Jesus says, I am the place where the glory of God now dwells. God's people in God's place. God's place now is in Christ. And what is the purpose? God's purpose is to save a chosen people. In Christ, the divine king, he is saving a chosen people. All right, Just a couple more places to turn, All right, and then we're done. I promise. Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Bible drills, here we go. Acts chapter 2. I know we preached through Acts last year. I want you to hear this. Acts chapter 2. This is the first Christian sermon. And there's so much here that we don't have time to look at and explain or go into. But I want you to see the connection here between David and the Davidic covenant and the first Christian sermon. Where the first people are saved from their sins and the church has begun. All right? Acts chapter 2, Peter's sermon, verse 29. Acts 2, verse 29. Peter says... Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That's David preaching about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter basically says, y'all, this, it's Jesus. It's Jesus that came through David's line. The one you crucified was the seed of David and the Son of God. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. And so what, what shall we do, they ask. And Peter says, repent. Turn in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. 
And that's what I would say to every person in this room. Turn to Jesus. Repent and find salvation. He will save you if you'll repent and believe. He has paid the price for our sins. He is our rest. He is the glory of God. And we receive salvation in Him. So why, what do we do? Why do we gather as people? He didn't just save a chosen people, but we also gather to exalt the incomparable God. If you turn to Acts chapter 15, real quick, real quick, Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verse 12. What do we see? Gentiles begin to come in faith to Christ. I hope the picture's coming together for you. Gentiles come to faith in Christ. And the church has a meeting in Jerusalem to decide, is it okay Is it okay for Gentiles to come into the family of God? So there's this important decision of the early church. People who were not Jewish, are they really God's people? And here's what James says. Again, recognize recognize this. Acts chapter 15, verse 12. Acts chapter 15, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. We don't have time to go, but if we looked at Revelation chapter 5, we would see that Gentiles from every nation come to the throne of God and they are worshiping Christ. We see people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation worshiping Jesus as king. But here's the question. How did the people go from Acts to Revelation? How did we get people from just the Jews now to all nations gathered worshiping Jesus? And the answer is... The kingdom of God came. As we studied in the book of Acts, and as we look around today, the kingdom of God is advancing. God's people became God's place, and they fulfilled God's purpose. I want to say that again. God's people became God's place and fulfilled God's purpose. You say, what do you mean by that? God's people, all of us who trust in Christ, became dwelling places for Christ. This is a big theology shift from the Old Testament. Because the presence of God is no longer in a temple made with hands, but the temple now is who? Us, right? So we are the temple. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so God's people become God's place. God is indwelling us and he fulfills his purpose by sending us out into the world to preach the gospel. And so there's this radical transition now from people coming to the temple Instead of people coming to the temple and beholding God's greatness, the temple now goes to the nations to declare God's greatness. This is the radical shift in the New Testament. And this is there in your notes. We go to the ends of the earth telling about the incomparable God so that the temple goes to the nations and declares the greatness of God. We're not asking people to come to the temple. No, we are the temple and now we go to the nations. 
Mm, this is good news. And this, this changes everything for the way that we live today in Rome, Georgia. We give our lives in Rome, Georgia, and to the ends of the earth, telling people about this incomparable God. And that's why your lives matter, and your words matter, and your actions matter. Because the temple is not a place. Church is not a building. You are the church. You have the Holy Spirit. We're all witnesses to the King and His kingdom. And so let's finish this up very quickly. If the divine king has a kingdom, that means that we're citizens of a new kingdom, right? And so as citizens of God's kingdom, first, three rivers, put all your trust in this king. Put all your trust in this king. You can trust him. He is ruling well. So whatever's going on even in your life today, Maybe you're waiting on an answer. You've been praying for something and you're not sure. Maybe you've started to doubt God. Does God really have my good in mind? Yes. He's the king. And he is working all things together for our good. Put your trust in this king. So here's the deal. This is great. It's probably my favorite part of this, this whole thing I wanted to share. We see three pictures of David, right? In, in the Old Testament. He starts off as a shepherd. Of sheep. Then he becomes a savior, a substitute for his people, standing in their place to fight Goliath, risking his own life. And then we see him as a king. And here's the beauty of, of, of the king that we worship today. First, three rivers. We follow a shepherd greater than David. We are his sheep. We've heard his voice. Today you can follow this shepherd knowing that he loves you and cares for you and he will not let any of you out of his hand. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice and I call them all by name. We follow a shepherd greater than David. And the truth is we trust a savior greater than David. A savior who risked his own life and gave up his own life to take on the wrath of God for us, to forgive us of our sins and was raised from the dead. You see, Jesus conquered a, a giant greater than Goliath. A giant that you could never slay on your own. The giant of your sin. The penalty of your sin. And he took it on himself. We follow a shepherd greater than David. We trust a savior greater than David. And this morning, Three Rivers, we worship a king greater than David. We worship a king whose kingdom will never end. He will not step off of his throne. He's not going to be impeached. He's not going to ever be up for re-election. He is always king. He's always seated on his throne. There will never be a day when Jesus does not rule and Jesus does not rule well. He is king of all kings. And so he deserves all of our worship, all of our praise. And in just a moment as we sing, he deserves the praise from our lips, the worship of our hearts, and the obedience of our lives. So three rivers, as citizens of God's kingdom, put all your trust in this king and spend all of your time proclaiming his kingdom. Let's give our lives proclaiming his kingdom so that the nations would hear of the greatness of God and have eternal life. This is the promise of David's kingdom. Not that David would be a great king, but there would be a king greater than David who would establish his kingdom forever. Forever and ever. And that means even today, Jesus rules well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your great word to us.
Father, we have flown through the scriptures today and we have only scratched the surface of what this means for us. So I, I pray that anything that needs to be forgotten, erase it from our memories. Anything good and profitable, would you let it stick today? The Father, above all, help us to trust you as the king of our lives, to trust you that you are in control. You are the sovereign Lord. And you are ruling over our lives and that we can truly trust you. But Father, you're the king. And we are the temple. So Father, I pray that we would not have expectations of people just to come to us. The expectation for 